Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Wadine's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore the power of state legislatures to affect our fundamental constitutional rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardina. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, California, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Jackie, great to be with you again. I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law, and I just hope we can get through this interview with David Knoll without running to the hills, screaming and yelling with our hair on fire and wondering whether the world's coming to an end. It, it, I, I hope so as well, Mitch. So today we have the privilege to speak with David Knoll, who is the Associate Dean for Faculty Research and Development and Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School. David is a prolific scholar, but we have invited him here to speak about an article he co-authored with John Michaels, a professor of law at UCLA. The article, Vigilante Federalism, can be found on our website, sidebarmedia.org, under the Books and Articles tab. But before we dive into the substance of the article, I want to see if I can provide some simple background, and then David, you can tell me if I got it right. I just want our listeners, especially the ones without legal training, to have a foothold in the issue before we go a little bit deeper. So in the article, you and John describe a trend in state legislatures where the state legislatures are passing laws that use private rights to penalize and suppress highly personal and often constitutionally protected activities. You provide several examples in the article. One, which I think many people are familiar with just based on current events, is Texas SB 8, or the Texas Heartbeat Act, which allowed private individuals, rather than the state, to sue anyone who performs or facilitates an abortion for a minimum of $10,000 per abortion, plus court costs, plus attorney's fees. And it was written so broadly, it arguably could have swept in a Lyft driver who took a woman to the clinic. When SB 8 was enacted, a woman had a constitutional right to an abortion. Roe v. Wade had not yet been overturned. So the law essentially allowed individuals to penalize someone for exercising a constitutional right. Other states have provided similar laws, but in other contexts, you guys describe the laws where parents are allowed to sue teachers for what is said or taught in a classroom, or librarians for books that are available in the library, even though these suits would implicate First Amendment rights, and the list goes on. So a private individual is able to sue and obtain damages from an individual who's exercising a constitutional right. Did I explain that correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, let me just say, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to have this new podcast. You're, you're exploring really important issues, uh, and, and it's a real privilege to be here. So um, 
Yeah, as you say, um, John and I started looking at this back towards the beginning of 2021, um, which was actually before people were worrying about SB8, because at that point it hadn't moved through the Texas legislature and taken effect. And we noticed a trend of legislatures creating what's called a private right of action, which is just saying you have the right to go into court and sue somebody. And these new private rights of action were training on what we tend to think of as the most divisive and most contentious issues in the culture wars. David, contentious and divisive are very broad categories that help frame the context of what you're calling culture wars. But as we look at the specific laws being developed, there are several categories that receive more focus than others. So abortion, as you mentioned, is a big focus of these laws. The ways that teachers talk about race in the classroom uh, is a major focus of these laws. Another big focus is LGBT kids' uh, ability to go to school and play in sports teams. And what all of these laws were doing was setting up private right of action and generally uh, allowing a pretty wide net of actors to go into court and, and to threaten lawsuits and to bring lawsuits against people who violated the, right, the prescriptions of these laws. David, I mentioned earlier that some of these laws appear to target activities that are constitutionally protected rights. For example, in Texas, SB8 targeted a woman's right to access an abortion, which at the time was constitutional. However, some of these laws go further and appear to be redefining who has rights, not necessarily what those rights are. Now, as you say, sometimes the laws are targeting constitutionally protected activity, uh, as we had with Texas SB8. Other times, they are simply enforcing what John and I think of as a very traditionalist moral code, a very particular idea of who's allowed to have status in the United States and who's allowed to exercise rights in the United States. And we sort of provocatively, right, we call these vigilante laws because when you take a step back from the way that they work as a legal matter, what they're really doing is setting up private individuals to take on the day-to-day responsibility of aggressively surveilling, policing, and enforcing a particular social order. And the laws are spreading like wildfire through the South and the Midwest. And really, we've been struggling to keep up with all the bills that are being introduced and and the states that are uh, that are passing them. We are speaking to David Knoll, Assistant Dean for Faculty Research and Development and Professor of Law at Rutgers Law. And he's the co-author of Vigilante Federalism. We're going to take a break right now to hear from our sponsors. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. 
Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law Practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertis is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, the same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services. SailorLegal.com S-A-Y-L-E-R Legal.com Welcome back to our discussion with David Knoll, who's talking to us today about the idea of vigilante federalism. So David, let me let me circle back to, to one of the things Jackie likes us to do is say, how did we get here? And I'm very sensitive to those topics that you've just highlighted. Is it unfair to single out what you're defining as modern vigilante laws when we can go back as far as 1938 and the Fair Labor Standards Act essentially gave private individuals the right to use civil action to enforce their rights. So this idea of private rights to enforce federal standards or laws isn't particularly new, is it? Right. So there is precedent for these laws in, you know, sort of a lot of laws like, you know, as you say, the Fair Labor Standards Act that allow people to go into court and enforce their rights. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about these laws is sort of the extent to which they're inspired by or they're sometimes copying verbatim from older laws, which are, you know, generally laws that protect workers, uh, that protect consumers, that protect employees, and using some of the enforcement technology from those laws to accomplish their purposes. So what's different about this, this new breed of laws is if you look at regimes that are uh, enforced by private parties historically, they tend to have the structure of sort of the little guy going against the big guy. For example, one of the, the earliest laws to use private enforcement at the federal level is the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is literally enacted in response to concerns that trusts are taking over the American economy. And so, right, to go after anti-competitive conduct, right? It gives people who have been injured by that conduct the right to go into court and, you know, sue over antitrust conspiracies. The FLSA, right, is a, is a wage and hour law. It allows victims of wage theft to go into court. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is an employment discrimination law or, or is an anti-discrimination law. 
and it allows people who have been injured by various types of discrimination to, to seek a remedy in court. There's a whole bunch of uh, environmental laws, consumer laws, and it, almost invariably, right, they have this sort of little guy against the big guy structure where uh, a private right of action is being authorized and being used to, to create a more inclusive society and to break down barriers. But David, on the face of it, aren't these new laws attempting to do the same thing, but merely using a different social lens, in this case, conservative religious ideology? The new laws are, they're using the same legal tools as these older laws, right? They're, they're saying you, you can go into court and bring a lawsuit if, you're, uh, if your neighbor uh, seeks an abortion uh, or has a trans kid that's playing on the high school sports team. But they're completely inverting the power relationship and sort of th- that, that you see in the older laws. So instead of having a little guy going into court, right, and suing uh, you know, some Fortune 100 corporation, which is indisputably well positioned to defend its rights and to, to fight back against lawsuits, the targets of these, these suits are really some of the most vulnerable communities in the United States. So it's, it's trans kids, it's teachers, oftentimes in very conservative parts of the country who, who just want to grapple honestly with the history of race in the United States. It's people seeking uh, reproductive health care. And uh, John and I think that sort of the next frontier of these things is going to be immigrants and people seeking to exercise the right to vote because the technology is very easily transported to those areas. And sort of the political movement that's pushing for these laws uh, has a, you know, expressed a, a major interest in uh, restricting people's ability to vote and, uh, and going after people without lawful immigration status. David, can I follow up one more thing? It strikes me that the other difference, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but for example, the, the issue with the Texas law SBA on abortion lawsuits totally does away with this concept that we think of as standing. Mm. Anybody can decide to bring this lawsuit. At least in those earlier examples you gave, the Fair Labor Standards Act, Title VII cases, RICO cases, Civil Rights Act, the individual was directly impacted and bringing a right on their own behalf. Mm -hmm. This is now empowering individuals to bring it on behalf of who? Society as a whole? I mean, that's the part that confuses me. Yeah, I mean, so the the Texas law um, is unique in that it allows any person to file a lawsuit. And sort of when you think about what the law was up to, that's right, that's central to its design. Uh, Because if the class of plaintiffs had been more limited, it would have been possible to, or or it would have been easier uh, to get a court to review the law before it took effect. Now, you know, I want to be clear that not all of these laws think about standing in such expansive terms, uh, right? Some of them will limit who can bring suit to a smaller class of parties. But even then, if you think about who these laws are empowering, right, and who they're giving the ability to go into court, it again, it's right, it's sort of people at the winning end of, of America's uh, traditional social hierarchies, right? And so, right, even when statutory standing is more restrictive than, than under Texas SB8, these laws are, right, they are about empowering and mainly, right, America's white Christian majority and uh, giving them a, a way to enforce their vision of society and to marginalize folks and to deter folks from exercising rights who challenge their status in American society, right, and challenge their position.
We are talking today with David Knoll, the author of Vigilante Federalism. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. You ought to be a lawyer. How many times have you heard this from your relatives, friends, and co-workers? So what's stopping you? Our family of California-accredited law schools that include Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and Empire College of Law provide on-site and hybrid online evening weekday classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. The LSAT is not required to apply, and a waiver is considered for applicants with an associate's or bachelor's degree and a strong academic record. We're currently accepting applications for our 2023 spring and summer semesters. For more information, go to montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. Your community, your law school, your future. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Law school isn't just for lawyers. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with David Knoll, co-author of Vigilante Federalism. David, I want to just kind of pull on one of the threads that you've brought up, which is this idea of rights. Mm. It felt like I think during the pandemic, especially, and you guys comment on this in the article, this idea of who has what right got kind of turned on its head. So you, you mentioned the idea that a private business owner on their own property were challenged about whether or not they had the right to set particular rules about what could happen on their property, like someone needing to wear a mask. And so you also talk about this this idea of that right and that kind of the tort of outrage. And it really feels like that has become a reigning tort idea in our legal schema. So mm-hmm. could you talk and help people understand this idea of the tort of outrage or or what exactly is the harm that's being kind of inflicted on those who are given the right to sue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, so as Mitch said, sort of usually when we think about lawsuits and when we think about tort law, the person who gets the right to sue is the person who's injured. And you don't need a law degree to identify who that is, uh, right? If, 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 If a negligent driver hits you when you're driving on the freeway, um, right. You're the person. Right. You're the victim of that in, in a very literal way. You have the authority or usually it'll be your insurer who actually does the work to go into court and to bring a lawsuit to, to seek compensation for your injuries. So it, what these laws are doing 
it's very clever at the same time that I, you know, I think it's very dangerous to sort of the structure of our democracy is they're flipping understandings of who has rights and, and who doesn't have rights. And so you see a move away from the idea that someone who has actually been injured, right? Somebody you can look at and say, intuitively, this person has been injured saying they have the right to sue. And instead, they're giving that right to, uh, Jackie, as you say, right, to people who are morally outraged, oftentimes simply at the existence of other people. As usual, Jackie was clearly paying more attention in law school than I was. I need you and perhaps our listeners would benefit by some additional explanation of this so-called tort of outrage. So the tort of outrage comes up because it, it was something that was disputed and talked about in the litigation uh, over Texas's SB8. There was a, a complicated series of lawsuits that different organizations brought to try and obtain some protection against SB8 before the law took effect. And on one of the trips to the Supreme Court, court was thinking about this very question that we're talking about, right? What is the real injury that somebody bringing a bounty lawsuit for $10,000 has suffered? And Texas's Solicitor General said, uh, you know, Your Honor, this is akin to the tort of outrage. I've taught law for 10 years. I know a fair bit about tort theory. I had no idea what the tort of outrage was. Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, who's a pretty sharp guy, he, uh, he also, at oral argument, uh, was, was sort of taken aback and he said, excuse me, I, I, I've never heard of this, right? I've never, right, this, is, this is a concept that I just don't know about in American law. And many people looked up the tort of outrage uh, following the oral <laughs> argument in, in the SBA case. And it turns out, right, that's right, that it's the, sort of this ancient device that allows you to sue over um, sort of outrageous insults to the community uh, or, or, or moral harms. And so that is right, you know, to the extent that there's an injury that's that's vindicated by these laws, I think Justice Thomas was really on to something there. There's not a, a real injury, but for the fact that these these laws are encouraging people to sue and setting up bounties that they can re- recover through the lawsuits, people aren't really injured in sort of in the way that you would talk about if you were just talking about these things with your neighbor on the street. Rather, it's right. They're suffering sort of an affront to their idea of good morals, and what these laws are doing is is putting the force of law behind that, right? And saying that if you're insulted, if you're outraged, if you can't stand the existence uh, of LGBT people in your community, not only do you have all the sort of your First Amendment rights to sort of you know express your displeasure, but all of a sudden, right, you have this incredibly powerful legal tool that says. If you send your kid to school, I'm going to sue you, right? You can threaten a suit uh, against people who challenge your conception of the way society should be run. And it strikes me that following along those lines that one of the distinct differences from some of the historical uses of private subordination, it's not just that there's an individual who's injured and has the tort, has the claim, but they came out of a more robust discussion of federal legislation and policy, a larger body of law that set the standards. In this case, that's completely absent. Now you have concern, as our previous guest David Pepper would say, gerrymandered districts that have individuals being elected for particular philosophical views Mm. who then create this sense of, of outrage out of whole cloth in thin air and now 
their rights to sue on it. It does strike me that that is distinctly different than the historical use. So historically, there's a lot of rights of action and right. there's a lot of law that happens at the state level, even in sort of the high point of the late 60s and 70s, where right, policy was effectively being made at the national level and, and states were playing more of a supporting role. But to go to something you said, these are very interesting interventions in our politics because you can read them almost as a counterreaction against what's happening at the federal level. So these laws, uh, you know, we have a very simple chart in our paper, right? And we show that they, re- they really explode after President Biden takes office. And there's a real sense in which, okay, the politics of MAGA has failed in sort of the attempt to disrupt the election and to prevent the certification of the Electoral College vote. And you could sort of, you could read these laws as an effort to continue pursuing the same agenda. They're almost exclusively coming from states where both branches of the legislature and the governor's office are controlled by hard right Republicans. And they're creating rights that empower really sort of the most extreme elements of the base. And this again sort of gets to why John and I are thinking about them as vigilante laws. First, because they're, they're encouraging that kind of in-your-face enforcement. People sometimes complain about people bringing employment discrimination suits or, or suits by people with disabilities who are seeking reasonable accommodations. You know, whatever the merits of those suits, those are not marginalizing anybody. Those aren't subordinating anybody. They're, they're, they're sort of part of the ordinary business of litigation. What, what these states are doing here is, right, you, you have states that are under single-party Republican control, and they're creating these legal tools that their supporters are then wielding in the world, right, and sort of and using to aggressively enforce the commands that these laws are pursuing. David, am I right in taking away from this discussion that this is why you are calling these efforts vigilante federalism? Because these are state laws attempting to create and enforce what really are issues of federally protected rights? It's part of a broader story. Uh, A number of political scientists uh, and other observers have sort of noted the extent to which state legislatures are becoming a really important launching off point or point of intervention for people who are participating in national political battles. And that's absolutely what is happening here. The laws, for the most part, are are not being written at the state level by lawmakers who are responding to local conditions. It's rather that you have national advocacy organizations that are drafting model legislation, and they look around and they say, where is a state legislature where we can get this bill through? Where is, you know, sometimes a city council or a school board uh, where we can get one of these measures through? And you're really losing that connection between local government and local concerns and states and local governments are becoming right just points of least resistance for national activist networks to put these policies in place and to right to empower these these hyper motivated partisans just a such an important conversation to have after an election when we're thinking so much and so much of our attention is focused on the federal Congress and who's going to control uh, House representatives, who's going to control the Senate, and completely ignoring what's happening at the state level and why it is so important to pay attention to state and local elections, including the the courts. One of the things that I, I want to highlight or make sure people understand is, is what's the danger 
in these laws, not just in terms of the private subordination, but the ultimate effect of them. So one of the things that that someone might say is, well, defamation is a tort, and I have a First Amendment right to say whatever I want within reason. And so if someone was to sue me for defamation, I could go to court, I could defend myself, I could bring up my First Amendment right to, to say particular things. And so, so why not just have these, if they're ridiculous laws uh, and they have to prove this kind of tort of outrage, what's the danger in these laws existing and have they actually been used effectively? Mm, yeah. So let me just start with sort of the human costs of these laws, because they've been quite effective at changing the way that people act on a day-to-day basis. And I think right, that's just a, an incredibly important point to keep in mind. So, for example, in Texas, one of the law's sponsors, Senator Brian Hughes, uh, is on record as saying he was surprised by the success of the law right after SB 8 took effect. Access to legal abortion uh, was virtually eliminated in that state. And so, you know, you have situations like people who are tragically experiencing a miscarriage. Their doctors cannot provide an abortion because they are terrified by the fear that somebody's going to bring a lawsuit under SB8 against the hospital, against the doctor, against anybody who's involved in the abortion. So there's really just absolutely tragic stories of people who are experiencing medical emergencies who find themselves on a flight to California or to Colorado or to Illinois. And when we say that these are, you know, reconfiguring power, you know, that is what we mean. There's a sense in which these laws are subordinating the people that they target. And that's that's happening just at a really visceral, real level. The more worrying thing is that as we grant rights to the groups that are going to enforce these laws, and as the laws are used to bully and intimidate their targets, that's going to have follow-on effects for the way that people participate in, in democratic life. Jackie, when David Knoll warns us that these types of vigilante laws are abdicating the obligation of the state to protect and enforce all of our constitutional rights and are instead authorizing by statute the process for private individuals to target, surveil, and intimidate on the basis of religious ideology, we should all wake up and be very concerned. And even more, it has the courts enforcing those private rights against individuals engaging in constitutionally protected conduct. When this happens, the government, through the courts, is complicit in undermining constitutional rights. David is correct when he observed that it really inverts the rights paradigm with which we're so familiar and ultimately puts us at great risk of losing our constitutional compass. These current laws are targeting abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, encouraging book banning, and revising history through political filter. But the breakdown of our constitutional protections means that these laws, if allowed to stand, if enforced, weaken the very foundation of our democracy. This first episode with David Knoll 
has set the stage to better understand the risks of vigilante laws. Jackie and I encourage you to join us for episode two with David Knoll when we discuss the potential for these type of laws to be used to disrupt free and fair elections and to further legalize the use of religious and political ideology to target vulnerable groups. And I know that Mitch and I are really interested in hearing about your reactions to this particular show. So you can certainly reach out to us on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, and tell us what's on your mind. You can also go to the sidebarmedia.org website and you'll see how to reach us via email. And you can certainly send us your comments or your questions or your concerns, as well as ideas for future episodes. Because what we wanna do here is really educate people and ourselves about what's going on in the world. I also would like to thank our sponsors who helped make this available. Presertus, Sailor Legal Services, the Colleges of Law and Jackie Gardena and Monterey College of Law. Our program today is produced by David Eakin, who also composed and performed all of our music. Also, thank you to Gogo Zoger, who is our social media director managing our gateway to our growing podcast listener community. For more information on Jackie, Mitch, and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org and join us at the Sidebar. California-accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law, provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.